You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Each episode, my guests and I explore the month's new releases and expiring titles, as well as offer our recommendations from the Criterion Collection's back catalog of streaming-only titles. I'm joined today by David Blakesley, host of the Criterion Reflections podcast, to talk about police stories, stories of crime and justice that are only available on the Criterion channel. I'll check in with Michael Hutchins to talk about the different countries that are represented on the Criterion channel, and Matt Gasteyer of the Complete Podcast will be stopping by to discuss some tips and tricks for digging into the Criterion channel's back catalog. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out videos by Daisuke Beppu. In this series of warm and inviting videos, Daisuke Beppu shares his thoughts and reflections on the Criterion Collection, home media, and the films he loves. Find his videos on YouTube and search for Daisuke Beppu. Criterion Cast podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is David Blakesley, host of the Criterion Reflections podcast, the Eclipse viewer, and frequent contributor to CriterionCast. David... Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a real pleasure. You helped me get my start in podcasting. And when I started this podcast, you were one of the very first podcast guests that I knew I wanted to have on. So it is a real pleasure to have you on Criterion Channel Surfing. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, yeah. And once you launched this program, this is one of the first podcasts I wanted to guests on. <laughs> I've had a chance to appear on a few others, but I have to say I've been very impressed by what you've put together, the professionalism and the just nicely well-rounded package that you've assembled over these previous six episodes. So it's a great honor for me to be part of this and one that I've been looking forward to for a while now. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. For any of my listeners who might be unfamiliar with Criterion Reflections, why don't you talk a little bit about the podcast, what started you on that journey for creating the Criterion Reflections podcast, and maybe give a quick update on where you are with it right now. Sure, sure. Well, Criterion Reflections is, I guess we're entering into our 11th year of this project I've been on. In January of 2009, I decided I was going to start blogging about the Criterion Collection in chronological order. So I did a little post about Nanook of the North, which was the earliest film that had been released. And I basically made a spreadsheet cataloging all of the Criterion Collection titles at that time in the order that they were first released in theaters, wherever that might be around the globe. And so for quite a few years, it was just a blog. And then late in the game, I kind of decided to switch my blog over to Criterion Cast. And then a couple of years ago, I made it into a podcast as I started really enjoying that format as a way of not just writing about the films that I was watching myself, but really talking about it with other people. As it turned out, Criterion Reflections as a podcast was kind of birthed in the era of 1969. So I started talking about films of 1969 in my first season. 
I'm currently in the middle of season three, which is talking about Criterion-related films of 1971. And I'm pretty eclectic. I not only consider the physical media releases, but also you know all of the titles that are associated with Criterion through the Criterion channel now. I talked about Hulu Plus films and the Filmstruck titles. And now that Criterion has their own streaming service, I'm including the streaming titles, the Laserdisc options, Essential Art House, Eclipse Series, anything that has sort of a tangential relation to the Criterion collection makes it into my feed, which, of course, as they keep adding more and more movies, makes the progress kind of slow. So I'm on a little (laughs) bit of a hiatus. As we kind of ended 2019, I decided to put the podcast on a little bit of a hold. We covered one of the Godzilla films, Godzilla vs. Hedorah. And then I decided, okay, well, I'm going to make sure I take in as many of the Criterion physical media releases as I could. And that prepped us for the year-end episode that I've been very privileged to be a part of on Criterion Cast since 2010 with Ryan Gallagher, Scott and I, Trevor Barrett, and Jordan Esso. We recorded a year-end episode kind of recounting our favorite releases of the last year. Then Ryan and Aaron West and I got together on New Year's Day to talk about the Somewhat skimpy, but still intriguing, (laughs) wacky drawing. So those are my most recent ventures into podcasting. But yeah, I will be picking up the latter half of 1971 fairly soon, and we'll be talking a little bit about some of those titles as we get through the episode. But that's what I do. I'm basically in a long, slow crawl through the Criterion Collection in chronological order. Who knows how many months it will take for me to get through 1971, and then we'll go from there. But that's what I do, and of course, Josh, you've been a pretty frequent contributor there, and it's been great to see you kind of stretch your wings and fly with this Cartoon Channel surfing venture here, and it's a great delight for me to be part of it. Thank you. It's been fun to listen to the ways in which these films really don't exist inside a vacuum, and to see that you know so many of these films in the 60s and 70s especially are all part of a continuum that the culture was shifting and to see how all of these artists were creating films out of the same or even contrasting impulses. I think that getting the chance to really listen to your seasons in full gives you a really interesting perspective on the art of cinema at that time. And I'm sure it must be really rewarding for you as you're going through it and talking with your guests to be able to explore these films films in that context. What are some of the films that you've got coming up next on your docket? Murmur of the Heart, Louis Mal's 1971 film, kind of a heavy theme with topics of incest and just all kinds of (laughs) crazy stuff happening there. (laughs) That's kind of the next one on my formal queue, but I've actually got kind of an emergency episode coming up because the Criterion Channel has unleashed a bundle of 1970s sci-fi films, and three titles in particular from 1971 are part of that package. A Clockwork Orange, George Lucas's THX 1138, and The Omega Man, starring Charlton Heston, are all released in 1971, and they're all going to be leaving the channel by the end of this month. So it's like, well, I better squeeze those in while I can. So I have a short-notice episode that I'll be trying to release as quick as possible so that listeners can try to cram those movies into their queue or listen to them later. You know, those are not hard films to find, but since they will have a very short lifespan on the Criterion channel, I thought, well, let's get them in while we can. And then after that, I'm also going to do an episode on Get Carter, which is another Criterion Channel release that came out, I think in December was when that was first released. I don't think it'll be there for the long haul, but I do want to give that one some love. That was from the earlier part of 1971. 
And it looks like a very worthwhile title to dedicate an episode to. So those are probably the three episodes I've got coming up in the immediate future. Oh, great. Great. Well, let's actually talk about the Criterion channel. You know, a lot of people in our circles are really dedicated to the physical side of Criterion. They really love the releases with the beautiful packaging. And I know you and I both are complete with the Criterion collection and love the physical releases as well. But you also podcast about the digital titles and you also podcast about the limited engagements. You Mm -hmm. don't confine your discussions to the releases that are in the permanent library. So, you know, you really are taking in the breadth of what Criterion's offering. You must really dive deeply into the channel. And I just want to get a sense from you about what are some of your favorite things about the channel? What are some of the things you really like about it? What are some of the things that you've had to work around? Your thoughts about kind of the interface, all of that. What are your impressions Mm. now that you've been working with the channel for a few months? Well, I think this is Criterion's third or maybe fourth go-around at it. I mean, if you want to count the tours and that yeah. kind of very early foray into streaming media, but every step along the way, I feel like they've just gotten better and better. I am one of those who would say the Criterion channel for me is an advancement or an improvement over Filmstruck. Not to slight what Filmstruck did, it was a great service, and I certainly respect that it spoke to an audience very effectively, and I mourned its passing as much as anybody. But I'm a complete fan and admirer of what the Criterion Channel has achieved. To me, it feels like it's kept all of the best pieces of Filmstruck. And just because it is very focused and dedicated on the Criterion Collection and its unique aesthetic and philosophy, if you will, it is absolutely 100% within my wheelhouse. And I really appreciate everything they put together. So, yeah, my decision to include the limited releases was just an acknowledgement that, you know, Criterion does not have omniscient and omnipotent reach into every channel or back alley of cinema as far as making it part of their permanent lineup or a roster of titles. But they are able to make deals with distributors, publishers, studios entities of all sorts to say, let us at least put our stamp of approval on certain films. And because they can do that sometimes for very limited engagements, I feel like, yeah, those are as legitimate criterion releases, even if they don't have the permanent ongoing rights. I mean, it's all kind of transitory (laughs) anyways, right? (laughs) So let's enjoy what we can while we can. And because I am trying to look at the unfolding of cinematic history as it occurred, When they release a film that was part of 1971, if I'm still talking about it, let's go ahead and squeeze it in there. So I will occasionally go out of chronological order. So, yeah, I like the interface. I like the fact that I can, you know, listen on my phone if there's a commentary track or just even as a refresher or on other devices. Of course, it aligns nicely with my Chromecast and my Roku player and all of those things. So it's just a great convenience. Sometimes I'll have the disc sitting downstairs. So it's like, ah, I'll just pop in the Criterion version. It's about good enough when I'm upstairs. <laughs> you know, save myself a few steps. So it's a wonderful service. I expect that I'll be a lifetime subscriber and just hope they just keep amazing us with new acquisitions and explorations of much of the best of what cinema has to offer. Yeah, I have to say, I keep being surprised. I feel like every month I am still shocked and surprised by how much content they add, how many different corners of the cinematic landscape they delve into, 
And it's really exciting. And I think that they are really intent on not just exploring cinema's past, but really exploring cinema's present. And that, to me, is really exciting that they are pushing the envelope forward with contemporary filmmakers by highlighting filmmakers of color by highlighting mm-hmm. female filmmakers and really trying to show here are some really great filmmakers from the past here are the filmmakers you need to understand to really know the foundations of cinema and now here are filmmakers to watch as well it's an incredible service that I'm continually amazed by because I think that I could probably spend my entire viewing hours just dedicated to the Criterion channel and be entirely satisfied Mm -hmm. with just watching things that are there because the variety is so immense and incredible. Yeah, just one sort of example of that. You know, when we did our year-end episode for our favorite releases of 2019, talking about physical media Criterion releases, my number two were the two Bruno de Mont films, uh, Le Vie de Mm. Jesus and L'Humanité. And just by coincidence, Criterion had a very nice bundle of Dumont films that I had not yet seen. And as I said on that episode, Dumont was kind of a big discovery for me. Just the way he makes films and those two particular titles really connected with me pretty profoundly. And it's like, oh, isn't that nice? There's a whole you know, four, five, six other films of his that are on the channel, which were due to expire at the end of December. So I had a nice quick pivot once I was able to finish my disc watching for the 2019 yeah. titles. Just, you know, spent the week off that I had between Christmas and New Year's kind of taking in things like Slack Bay, Camille Claudel, 1915, Flanders, Lil Ken Ken. Those are just incredible films. And Dumont really expanded his range and reach subsequently to those first two releases. And I would love for at least a few of those to find their homes in Criterion Blu-rays down the road. But what a great reinforcement of this new discovery for me to kind of, not his entire catalog, but certainly some of the key releases that he's made in the years since those late 90s, early 2000s films. A nice supplement. Really enjoyed that opportunity to dig deeper into Dumont. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, I always ask some questions in our Criterion Channel Club Facebook group related to the channel and related to film watching. And as we're entering the new year, I was wondering, what New Year's resolutions do you have when it comes (laughs) to movie watching? Well, if the dates 1971 or 1972 are attached to the film, boom, I'm on it. (laughs) For starters. I think one of your poll questions was to try not to stress out over the fact that there's way more content than I can keep up with. And that's the one that I chose because I have definitely had to see things come and go that I just have not had a chance to fit in. As much as I enjoy taking in these movies and kind of seeing what's available, I don't want to just become kind of this gobbling consumer of just watching it at hours of the day where my consciousness is not really focused and I'm just (laughs) plowing through. I don't want to give these films kind of a disrespectful, inattentive treatment. The fact is, there's always going to be more great cinema than my eyes and ears will ever have a chance to absorb. So that's just built into life. You're never going to be completely, complete, complete on everything. (laughs) You know, just let some of it go. Take in what you can, what you have time for, and breathe free and easy with it. Yeah. In the last main episode of the show, Matt Gasteyer and I talked about some strategies for tackling the limited engagements. And one of the tips that he gave was to just come to accept the fact that there is too much content to consume. 
I think that that first result in the poll, try not to stress over the fact that there's way more interesting content than I can keep up with. I think that's a really great resolution to come up with. Stressing over the fact that we can never keep up with those things is going to keep us all, I think, a little too focused on the channel. But I will say that the very close second in the poll was keeping up with those expiring titles. So I do think that there is that dual impulse to try to catch it all. Yeah. Especially with that sci-fi bundle that's coming up. We'll talk more about that in the next segment. But there are a lot of titles that are really interesting that people really want to see. The very distant third was finally start digging into the back catalog. And I do think that the type of work that you're doing with your podcast, where you actually get to dig into the back catalog, I think you really get a chance to look at films that maybe are overlooked a little bit more on the channel. Yeah, it definitely helps to have kind of a disciplined approach, a game plan, if you will. I've benefited quite a bit. Now, obviously, that means there's a lot of films from the 80s and 90s and other years and decades, even past films that like don't quite fit into my scheme. So, you know, I know I'm actually missing out, but you know, that's just the nature of life. (laughs) You're going to have to deal with it. (laughs) But I do like that kind of methodical approach that says, let me really dig into what was happening those years. And the 1970s, the early 70s in particular, were very profound coming of age years for me. Yeah, this definitely is a very profitable study just where I'm at in life. And the things that were happening in culture at that time, it's a profoundly interesting period and one that I think has a lot of resonance to what we're living through these days. Yeah, yeah. Another option on the poll, some people were talking about wanting to explore the filmographies of particular directors. Mm -hmm. In the comments, they were talking about exploring more director filmographies in general. Others hit on specific directors like Melville, Ozu, the Zatoichi films, Mm -hmm. more female filmmakers, Kelly Reichardt, Hitchcock, Bunuel, Schrader with the bundle coming up, Imamura, Naruse. One option that was added was someone wants to watch more Olympics box set films before the Olympics. Yeah, that's a great theme for coming up. I mean, we've got, you know, the Summer Olympics coming up. I'll be digging into my box set as we get ready for the Summer Games. Yeah, yeah. Finally, exploring more silent films. While there aren't a ton of silent films in the collection, there are a handful. So yeah, it's always fun to see what people are looking at doing over the next year and what their projects are. David and I are going to be right back to talk about the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of January. But first, I'm going to be checking in with Michael Hutchins, and we're going to talk about the different countries that are represented by the Criterion Channel. So stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel surfing, check out Film Baby Film, a podcast hosted by Jonathan James Lobinger. A podcast for people who love movies, or films, if you're being pretentious. Host Jonathan James Lobinger discusses a wide range of film topics with guests who have more interesting perspectives than he does. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm here with Michael Hutchins, one of our regular contributors to Criterion Channel Surfing, as well as a frequent contributor to most of the Facebook groups dedicated to the Criterion Collection. 
He's joining me today to talk about the different countries that are represented with films on the Criterion channel. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. And the same here, Josh. Good to talk to you. So, Michael, you have done a lot of research into the different countries and the different regions that are represented by the Criterion Collection and the Criterion Channel. Let's dig into the numbers here. What were some of the things that you discovered and what are some of the surprises that you found as you look into the numbers? I first start off, I had to set parameters according to what country actually produces a film. So I had to break it down so that there is one country per film. I know sometimes there are international films that are produced by companies in different countries, but I had to determine, you know, based on other criteria other than that. But I yeah. broke it down. At the moment, there's a little over 1,900 films that are streaming on the channel, 1,600 permanent and 300 limited engagements. What I discovered was 25% of them are from the United States, and I was a little surprised by that. Oh, wow. You know, you know, and that was based because what I had thought of earlier was that most of them would be from the U.S. Because when you think of the Criterion Channel, you think that they want to appeal to a U.S. audience and Canadian audience. And you know, the typical American's aversion to subtitles. In this case, I was just happy to know that there are that many films outside the United States on the channel. Of the 1900 films, 63 countries are represented. Mm. And naturally, you know, when you start breaking them down by region, it's pretty obvious which countries are underrepresented. And that's, you know, certain regions like Africa and South America yeah. barely touched. You've got a lot from Asia. Can't say Asia. I'll say Japan because yeah. there's very few films from China, the Philippines, or other areas of Southeast Asia or Korea. And we know how big the South Korean market is. So that's not very well represented in the current catalog as well. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. As I look at the groupings and the way you dug into the numbers, there are a lot of underrepresented regions. But it's fascinating that even when you take into account some of the countries that maybe have a slightly higher representation, like Sweden, the majority of some of those countries all are coming from a single filmmaker. That's true. Yes. yes. What are some of the hypotheses or some of the thoughts that come into your head as you look at that and observe that? I think I've come to the conclusion that when making these selections, that Criterion isn't... Well, in the past, a few years ago, Peter Becker said that they was going to make a concerted effort to bring more underrepresented regions into the collection. And yeah. I'm not really certain they're doing that to the extent that I expected for it to happen. Maybe it's a gradual process and something that we can look forward to. But right now, I'm not seeing it. For instance... As you said, certain countries have a pretty good number of films, but they all seem to be more geared towards choosing certain directors, certain filmmakers, mm. and not making an effort to go beyond the top tier directors from those countries. So you have a lot of films from India, but they're almost all by Sajid Ray. Yeah. Or you've yeah. got you know, Iranian films, they're almost all by Kiristami. You know? yeah. The two films from the Philippines are both by Lino Braca. So it's almost like their curation is geared toward filmmakers and not regions. Yeah, 
the Criterion Collection is definitely geared towards the auteurist mindset and towards that idea that the director is the author of a film and they're going to really dive into director filmographies more than maybe regional filmographies. And it seems that even in their world cinema project box mm -hmm. sets, they're really focused on particular filmmakers from underrepresented countries rather than the underrepresented countries themselves. Yeah, and we may see some changes of that for any future World Cinema Project boxes because they've already skimmed the cream from the crop of those films that are mm. part of the WCP. And so if there are any future uh, releases, I expect they'll be diving deeper into films from Africa and South America. Yeah, yeah. What are some things that maybe you would really like to see more of as you have now looked at the cold hard numbers <laughs> of the collection? It's no surprise that there are a lot of films from Japan and France. I think that's right. where we get our Kurosawas, that's where we get our Renoirs and our Truffauts and our Godards. But what are some regions that you really would hope that they maybe devote a little more effort and a little more time to? As I mentioned earlier, South America and Africa are so underrepresented, and that's the areas where I wish they would make some kind of effort to find films from those regions. Yeah, yeah. Are there any that you see maybe on the horizon that they have made some inroads with that are in the rumor mill or that they have hinted at that you think are potential acquisitions? Well, except for those World Cinema Project films that have not been released yet, there mm. are several of those, many from Africa and Central and South America. So that would be the ones that I expect that they would be releasing soon or, you know, before they go into other filmmakers from those countries. Okay. Okay. Are there any other things that really kind of stood out to you as you were looking at the numbers and you're digging into things? <laughs> oh, yes. One of the most mind-blowing fact I discovered was that only 38% of the films on the channel is in English or from oh, wow. English-speaking countries. Now, that would be a surprise, of course, considering what I said earlier about uh, yeah. Americans not wanting to read subtitles. But I suppose the criterion caters towards a different audience, even among yeah. American film viewers. I was really happy to see that because of the 1900 films, 1200 are in a foreign language. So that's, that's pretty good. And another area, I don't know if Becker was specifically directing his statements towards this area, but I can see that on the channel itself, they are going out of the way to bring in more female directors. Mm. And there was a very big increase when you compare the figures before and after the channel. For yeah. instance, in the permanent library, there's only 72 female directors. Well, of the 500-something films that they've added in limited engagements, over 100 of them are by women. Oh, wow. And so you go from a 9% of the permanent library to 20%. That is a pretty big leap there in itself. Yeah, that shows a real commitment to yeah. break open the canon to include female filmmakers and filmmakers of color. And that's an incredible increase in, is, in representation. Yeah. That's fantastic. What are we looking at when it comes to the limited engagements? How are they approaching that? Are they expanding the scope of underrepresented countries? Or are they really trying to broaden the appeal of the channel by focusing more on English titles? What does that look like? Well, sadly, the facts don't bear that out. Of the 566 films that are played either now or since April, 340 of them, you know, more than half are actually from the United States. You know, oh, interesting. And English. Yeah. 
205 from Europe, and that's pretty much the whole gamut. There's only 20 films that are from Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and Africa, and that whole collection of films. Mm -hmm. And I think we spoke about this earlier. Of course, they are business. They want to broaden their audience. They need to make money in order to bring us the films that we want to see. And so I suppose when they choose films like from the Hollywood era or, for instance, this new science fiction from the 70s things, they are trying to bring in a certain audience that would not normally see Criterion as a go-to place to watch films. Yeah. And so that's why so many of the limited engagement films are English language Hollywood films. You really can't fault them for that. You bring in somebody like with honey, and then once they start sipping that honey, then they say, oh, well, let me try that over there. So let's try that. So yeah. that could be a way of building their audience as well. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Again, I think that Filmstruck had such a great library of that classic Hollywood. And I think that they're doing a great job of specifically curating classic Hollywood films for people who love that and then giving them a taste of the art house side and hopefully getting people to check out some things that maybe they wouldn't look at otherwise. True, so true. Well, is there anything else that you've noticed in your wanderings through the numbers (laughs) that you'd like to talk about here? I did notice when I was checking the stats for the permanent streaming only library, that's only 370 films, that it's evenly split among Europe and Asia. And United States is a pretty small amount of those permanent streaming only non-physically released films. So over 160 of them are from Europe, 159 from Asia, and only 52 from North America. Those are the films that's been sitting around for years and have never been released physically. Of course, that number is decreasing every year because they are still pulling films from that library, but not as much as I think they had been in the past. That's why these days, whenever they release the schedule for upcoming titles, I'm always surprised that these films come out of the blue. We have no idea, even in the rumor mills, that they were coming. But it's good that they're available. Some people like to have the physical disc. They like it in their hand. But if you want to see the film, it is there on the channel. Yeah, that's great. Well, Michael, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to get your insight and to have you dig into these numbers for us and to provide a little insight. It's really easy to think we know what there is, but when we really dig in and see that there are some really interesting statistics there, there's some really interesting breakdowns and Criterion's doing some really great work there. Yeah, and it's enough to surprise someone like me who thinks I'm on top of everything, and all of a sudden (laughs) I start looking at the numbers and I get a better idea, hopefully for your audience as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, Michael, where can people find you? I am on Letterboxd at Michael Hutchins and on the Facebook groups for Criterion Now and the Criterion Channel Club. Great. We'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as David Blakesley and I continue our conversation by talking about January's new releases and expiring titles. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Just the Discs, hosted by Brian Sauer. Just the Discs is a podcast about Blu-rays. In each episode, Brian Sauer will go through a stack of discs from various distributors and talk about them. Find Just the Discs wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with David Blakesley and we're getting ready to dive into the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of January. Okay, David, so just looking at the list of titles that are coming here, wow. Just looking at the breadth of this, what are some of your general impressions? It's just an abundance of riches. Like, you didn't have to do this, you know, <laughs> to keep my loyalty. A half of what they've released would have been completely sufficient, and I would not have had any complaints or thought like, oh, that's kind of skimpy. Yeah. It's yeah. overwhelming. It really is. And I know some of these titles will be lingering on the channel for quite some time. Others are going to come and go pretty quickly. But it just feels to me like they must have this acquisition team that's just out there just combing all corners of the globe to say, who else can we get in? What other interesting things are happening out there? And they're just hauling in the nets as rapidly as they can and throwing it up there. It's quite astonishing. And it's like, can they maintain this pace? I don't know, but it just touches so many bases. Classic Hollywood, art house canon, new directors, voices, and perspectives that you've never maybe even heard of, or at least I'll speak for myself. There's a lot of new names, but also some really delightful additions, and also people who are looking for something in their comfort zone, the Burt Lancaster, Danny Kay type yep. of things. I mean, yep. whatever angle you want to go in, they're going to show you something new and different and surprising. So it's just quite an awesome and impressive lineup. No way around it. Yeah. Well, you can look at all of the titles in the show notes. There will be a link to Criterion Cast's post on this. But I'm going to do a very quick rundown of this. First off, we have Directed by Susan Seidelman. There are a few titles that are already on the channel, but we'll also be getting things like Desperately Seeking Susan, Cookie, She-Devil, and You Act Like One Too. The big bundle of the month that everyone is really excited about is the 70s sci-fi bundle with everything as eclectic as Cornell Wilde's No Blade of Grass to the Omega Man, Rollerball, Boy and His Dog, Logan's Run. I mean, it is an incredible looking bundle there, especially for fans of that 70s sci-fi look. Next up is directed by Agnes Jouy with The Taste of Others and Look at Me. We have Three by the Dardenne Brothers. There are two films that are currently on the channel, La Promesse and Kid with the Bike, but we're also getting L'Enfant, which is a film that the Criterion Collection has not yet released. We're getting a lot of films by Louis Bunuel for a directed by Louis Bunuel bundle. And there are quite a few that are currently on the channel, but there are a few that have not been on the channel. And there are a lot of out-of-print Criterion titles in here as well. We'll be getting A Dog's Life, so stories of people and their dogs. Some that are repurposed from other bundles, like A Boy and His Dog from the 70s Sci-Fi Bundle. Some that are already on the channel, but there are also quite a few new releases in that bundle as well. As David mentioned earlier, we also are getting a starring Danny Kaye bundle with some classics like Secret Life of Walter Mitty and Hans Christian Andersen, Court Jester. We're getting a really massive bundle starring Burt Lancaster with Brute Force. I Walk Alone, which was scheduled to expire in December, is being held over again for this bundle. We're also getting Sorry, Wrong Number, From Here to Eternity, The Train, Seven Days in May. Again, this is a pretty impressive collection of titles here. 
We're getting directed by Jane Campion, another mainstay from Criterion, with a lot of titles that we haven't seen from the physical side of the collection. Films like The Piano, Portrait of a Lady, Holy Smoke. A relatively new filmmaker, Khalik Allah, we're getting four of his films, including his recent acclaimed Black Mother. We're getting a Meet the Filmmakers with Paul Schrader, and the Meet the Filmmakers segment will be directed by Alex Ross Perry. And we've got Taxi Driver, Hardcore, Mishima, which is already on the channel, along with Patty Hearst, Autofocus, and Adam Resurrected. And there will be three additional titles that are going to be added to the bundle in February. Taxi Driver will also be added to their From the Archive collection, which will include all of their Laserdisc bonus features. We're getting the streaming premiere of Three Faces, the film from Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi. Chloe Zhao, we're getting her first film, Songs My Brother Taught Me. We're getting a new Creative Marriages bundle with Fellini and Messina, featuring Lestrada and Juliet of the Spirits. We're getting a handful of double features over this next month, Elmer Gantry and Wise Blood, Pandora's Box and Something Wild, The Letter and Le Corbeau, Bay of Angels and Atlantic City, and we're getting two different versions of The Lower Depths, one by Renoir and one by Kurosawa. Most of these are already on the channel or are repurposed from other bundles this month. We're getting Criterion Collection editions of The Sweet Smell of Success, Betty Blue, Panique, The Fugitive Kind, Fat Girl, and Until the End of the World. We're getting Saturday matinees of Twelve Angry Men, Zazie dans la Metro, The Court Jester, and Great Expectations. We're getting shorts plus features of The Hypnotists and The Little Foxes, Said and The Black Stallion, Good Intentions and Death of a Cyclist, and Carving Magic and Delicatessen. <laughs> Finally, we're getting observations on film art with Vampire, the genre film as experimental film. David, from the chuckle there, I am guessing that you have some thoughts and feelings on Carving Magic and Delicatessen. <laughs> Well, it's just that kind of subversive humor, that little twist that Criterion throws in. They're kind of in on the joke, and they're letting us on it as well. Carving Magic, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of an educational... It really aspires to helping ordinary schlub dudes <laughs> in suburban <laughs> USA learn how to carve a turkey and a ham or a pot roast or whatever. Directed by Herschel Gordon-Lewis. It's just really quite a remarkable little exercise there before they were famous type of thing. So I just had to laugh as you were <laughs> kind of coming to the end of the shuffle here. It's an overwhelming stampede of remarkable films from literally every corner of the cinematic universe, it seems. And what an incredible lineup just for one month at the beginning of this new year. And it does hit every corner, right? I mean, we are getting early films from filmmakers who are now kind of making their mark. Yet we're also getting this huge collection of Boonwell films. And mm -hmm. it runs the gamut, right? Right, right. It's incredible. Well, out of that avalanche of content that we're getting, what do you recommend that people check out this month? What are some things that you would like to highlight for our listeners? I'll probably be brief, and you can call me Captain Obvious if you wish, but the <laughs> 70s sci-fi is just an amazing lineup. I mean, they didn't get silent running, which is probably the one thing that I might want to add to that, but mm. how can I criticize any kind of lack there? And there's new titles, even films I haven't heard of, you know, God Told Me To, and a few others. 
But that really does seem pretty essential. Obviously, I'll be dedicating a bit of my podcasting focus to those films, the three films I've already mentioned. And then the Luis Bunuel collection, that is just kind of staple, art house, canonical, tentpole type of stuff, especially for viewers who maybe just haven't had a chance to take it in or can't quite shell out the big bucks for the out-of-print discs. There's so much there, and it really just should be in your memory bank to see what Bunuel did during those pivotal 60s and 70s years. So don't waste time. If you don't own the discs already, get to it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think the 70s bundle is going to be essential to watch. And Boonwell is, I mean, and the fact that it spans his silent work, his Mexican work, and his surreal work, what better way to get an overview of this director's career than this bundle? My recommendations, I would like to push for Three Faces by Jafar Panahi. I think that this is an incredible meta-fictional work from a master filmmaker that really examines what does it mean to make a film? What does it mean to go into a community? What does it mean to be an artist in a repressive society? He is an Iranian filmmaker who is prohibited from making films, and yet he somehow still manages to make a film every few years. He works around the censor's rules, and he examines the roles of women in society, the roles of of the artist in a society, the responsibilities of an artist in society. And Three Faces is an absolutely gorgeous film that I would highly recommend people check out. It's one of those masterful films from a corner of the world that we see our politicians putting out a lot of rhetoric about different cultures and different societies. And I think it helps when we can actually see real people from those societies. I think Three Faces is a beautiful film to give us a window into another society and culture. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I really appreciate what you have to say on behalf of the Iranian culture and all that's going on these days and where we go from here, who knows, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that Panahi is a deeply empathetic filmmaker, and I think that we need more acts of empathy right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Kalik Allah's Black Mother was a revelation when I saw it. I was in Portland for a conference and gave a quick question out to some of our Facebook groups about the Portland International Film Festival, and Josh Brunstein from Criterion Cast directed me to some of his recommendations for the Portland International Film Festival, and this is one of the films that he recommended. I'm so glad I got a chance to see this there. It is a lyrical, poetic documentary that uses non-synchronous sound and it is almost like watching a lyric poem as it explores the history of Jamaica and explores the history to illuminate the present. And it is one of those just outstanding, gorgeous, and absolutely transfixing and moving films. It's a singular vision of a place and I am really excited to see what this filmmaker does next. That's one that I think that people should not sleep on. And I Walk Alone, this was one of the expiring titles from last month that I thought was expiring that I did catch. 
And it surprised me. I went into it not expecting much. It's directed by Byron Haskin, who also did Robinson Crusoe on Mars and War of the Worlds. But it is a really taut little thriller. There are some gorgeous images. It has Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas and the performances are stellar. It starts off as a revenge thriller and morphs into something much more interesting and nuanced. It reminded me that I like Burt Lancaster as an actor and got me really excited to dig into the Burt Lancaster bundle. Those are my three recommendations here. David, what are you eager to catch that's new to the channel that you haven't had a chance to see yet? L'Enfant by the Dardenne Brothers is absolutely right up there. My wife and I are both big fans of their films. We've eagerly devoured everything that Criterion has released on physical media, as well as a few streaming titles we've happened to find here and there. But this was one that I don't believe I've discovered yet, so that's absolutely in the queue, just because I like everything they do, and more Dardenne, go Criterion, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, you know, the Paul Schrader collection. Paul Schrader and I are fellow alumni of Calvin College, now Calvin University here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Had a chance to meet Paul Schrader back when he was doing kind of his publicity tour and kind of early premieres of First Reformed. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm best buds with Paul Schrader or anything like that, but <laughs> I do feel we come from a very common frame of reference. Big fan of his, although there are quite a few blind spots, things of his that I haven't seen over the years. And so the later films in that package are definitely going to be in my must-watch list in short order. And I'm encouraged to know that there's more on the way in February as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. The Dardenne brothers, I think, are outstanding filmmakers, and I'm very eager for those. I'm really excited to check out more Paul Schrader. I loved First Reformed quite a bit. You know, I'm still a neophyte when it comes to Paul Schrader, so I'm very eager to dig into a lot of his films. I am really interested in Songs My Brother Taught Me. I haven't had a chance to see the writer, but hearing the rapturous praise for that has made me really eager to check out Chloe Zhao's films. And based on the strength of Black Mother, I am very eager to dig into the rest of Khalik Allah's films and see more of what he is doing as a documentarian. And again, based on I Walk Alone, I am really eager to dig into Burt Lancaster a little bit more. I think he is a really unique actor, and I think his presence, I've always read it as being maybe a little stiff and maybe a little stagey at times, but he keeps winning me over with things like Sweet Smell of Success and with things like I Walk Alone, and so I'm very curious to revisit some of the films that didn't work as well for me, and I'm excited to check out The Swimmer, I'm excited to check out The Train, some of these later films in his career. There's so much great Lancaster here. Yeah, he's always been a bit of a ham. I mean, there's just no way of getting around it. You know, he likes yeah. to flaunt his stuff, but he's got it. <laughs> That's the thing. He you does. Know, he <laughs> can back it up. And I think that is what makes him such an exceptional screen presence. And if you want to brag a little bit and kind of show your stuff and then show us that you really have it, yeah, more power to you, man. And that's Burt <laughs> Lancaster right there. <laughs> yes, yes. In the Facebook group, the poll for what people were most excited to see, no surprise here, the 70s sci-fi bundle was the most eagerly anticipated bundle, followed pretty closely by the Louis Bunuel, and then followed by Paul Schrader. So those are the films that people are really excited for coming out this month. But, you know, David, as I like to say, Criterion <laughs> giveth and Criterion taketh away. That's right. All things must pass, you know. 
sometimes Criterion taketh away a little sooner than others. And we are losing just about all of the titles in that sci-fi bundle. Dark Star, A Boy and His Dog, Death Race 2000, and God Told Me To are going to stick around on the channel, but everything else will be going. We are going to be losing the British Hitchcock films Champagne, Blackmail, Murder, The Skin Game, Rich and Strange, and Jamaica Inn at the end of the month, but the rest of that bundle will stick around. We'll be losing the films by Jonas Mikas, Walden, and Lost, Lost, Lost. They don't often list shorts among expiring titles. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. The short films may be remaining on the channel, but it might be safer to watch those this month as well if you're worried about that. The Directed by Peter Greenaway bundle will be losing Cook the Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, and Prospero's Books. Looks like the other shorts and three features will also still be remaining on the channel. We'll be losing the Three Jacks bundle, which includes Five Easy Pieces, The King of Marvin Gardens, and The Last Detail. We'll be losing a chunk of the Caught on Tape program, which has Face in the Crowd, The Conversation, Blowout, and The Lives of Others. Diva, Three Colors Red, and Cachet will still be on the channel. We're going to be losing a few titles from the Queer Sighted, the Ache of Desire program. We'll be losing Yentl and Mulholland Drive. The other seven features will still be remaining in that set. We'll be losing a couple of the Saturday matinees, Blackjack, Kess, and Twelve Angry Men. And then we'll be losing a few of the individual titles. Blancanives, They Live by Night, Just Another Girl on the IRT, Mrs. Miniver, which is a film that it's come up in the group that it's directed by William Wyler, but it has not been included in the William Wyler bundle, and no one seems to know when it was added to the channel or how it appeared there. It seems to have maybe been added sometime in December, but never added to the just-released page, so this has been a sneak release, and it's leaving at the end of this month. And then this is the one short that we have found that has been added to the expiring titles page as well. And this is a short called Hacked Circuit, which has to deal with the film The Conversation. So it's not as bad as other months where we lose a ton of films. So this seems more doable for a lot of people, but this still is a lot to get through. David, what do you think that people should catch here? Well, yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, obviously, I don't want to disregard any particular titles, but two that seem maybe less likely to come back to the channel would be the two by Jonas Mikas that will be leaving, yeah. Walden, Lost, Lost, Lost. Just because, you know, with Hitchcock, with Greenaway, and with some of the other slightly more mainstream titles, you can sort of see them returning to the collection somewhere not too far down the road. With Mikas, who knows? Yeah. He's important and influential but also kind of obscure. And I don't know that there's a great clamoring commercial demand to get his stuff back. So those are probably two that I'm going to try to squeeze in when and if I can. Those are pretty huge films to try to catch. I would probably recommend that people catch, if they haven't already, Cook the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. I think it's a challenging film, but I do think it's one of Peter Greenaway's more accessible films. And if people are interested in his work, I think he's an important filmmaker. I think that's a good one to catch. I love all of the Three Jacks films, but I do think that The Last Detail holds a special place in my heart. I love Hal Ashby's stuff, and I think that Jack Nicholson in the 70s is really a force to be reckoned with. And I do love the conversation. I think that what Francis Ford Coppola did there is really masterful. 
Is there anything else besides the Mika's films that you're really dying to see before it leaves? You put the last detail on there. I mean, the other Jack Nicholson films I already own on disc, but that's one that I don't yeah. have. So I'll probably try to put some intentional effort to catching that one as well. I remember even as a kid seeing the newspaper advertisements and stuff for it, that just kind of iconic pose, Jack Nicholson, bare chest, cigar, sailor's cap yeah. on all that. I'll definitely want to find a time to put it in the queue. Yeah, that's great. As I was scrolling through the titles that are leaving, Blancanives looked really fascinating. And as I was looking at the description, my wife and I both kind of looked at each other and thought, this seems like a really interesting film. Paying homage to silent film and bullfighters and fairy tales. That may be one that I try to catch at some point and my wife wants to try to join me for it. The bits of Peter Greenway that I have seen, I've really appreciated and really enjoyed. So Prospero's books will probably bump up on my queue. And Jonas Mikas, like you said, he's an important filmmaker and he's someone that I have not yet really dug into. The films that are leaving are long films and I find those three hours a little daunting for each of those. But I do know that I just need to carve out the time to really sit down and give those the attention that they deserve because I think that he is a filmmaker that I need to start paying attention to. We lost him this year, I believe, 2019. And so I think he's somebody that is going to be really important to pay attention to. In the Facebook poll, people are, again, no surprise, really, really eager to check out that 70s sci-fi bundle and to try to cram as many of those in. I'm seeing people talking about many of those films in the group already as they're trying to squeeze those in before they leave. The British Hitchcock films was number two on that list, and Peter Greenaway films were number three. Well, those are the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of January. David and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment as we dive into the Criterion Channel's back catalog and kick off the new year with some police stories. But first, I'm going to speak with our friend Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast to talk about some tips and tricks for tackling the Criterion Channel's vast back catalog. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out Good Times, Great Movies, hosted by Doug McCambridge and Jamie Lorello, a podcast about the best, but usually the worst, of 80s cinema. Every other Friday, Doug and Jamie discuss a film from the 80s. Some are films they haven't seen since they were kids and offer a contemporary perspective. Others are films they've never seen before, but probably should have. Do they hold up? Are they classics? Or would these films just be better off having been lost to time? Find out more at goodtimesgreatmovies.com. I'm here once again with Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast, now in its third season, this time exploring the complete filmography of Krzysztof Kozlowski. He's also completed a series of essential letterbox lists for anyone just beginning their journey into the Criterion Collection called How Do I Criterion? Matt, as always, thank you for joining me. I want to say, you know, last month we talked about how limited engagements work. And last month, Matt, last month the Criterion channel <laughs> broke me. I finally hit that place where I did not catch up and I couldn't even try. It was the musicals. It was the musicals, Matt. They completely broke me. I think it was good preparation for being broken again because there's quite a few titles expiring this month as well. So I think this is the new normal now where it's just going to be an onslaught and you kind of just have to pick your battles. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. 
Well, last month, again, we did talk about the limited engagements and some tips and tricks and maybe more acceptance about the fact that we can never keep up with all of the new and expiring titles that come to the channel. But I think that with all of the fervor that happens with all of the great titles that come to the channel, it's really easy to overlook all of the titles that are in the permanent streaming collection. So I think it's worth maybe talking about some strategies for tackling the films in the back catalog. So Matt, let's talk about this. How do we dig in to all of these really incredible films that are in this vast library that is at our fingertips that we don't often think about because they get overlooked by all of the really incredible bundles that are maybe flashier or more current? Yeah, I mean, this is another daunting task, but for a completely different reason than the limited engagements, right? This is something that you can stretch out a bit and take your time with, but it's a pretty huge mountain to climb. Even for somebody like me or a Michael Hutchins, who has seen every spy-numbered release physically, there's still over 300 titles that are exclusive to this streaming service. So I first of all just want to make a case for the value of doing this. If you're somebody who's listening to this show, you're more than a casual viewer of the Criterion channel most likely, but you might be focused on what's arriving every month and what's leaving every month. And that's certainly something that I do myself. But I think that there are so many wonderful films that are available within this service that don't get talked about, as you mentioned, and that fall through the cracks. You know, I think about even something as simple as the Naruseis, Mikio Naruse, mm. the films that they have available on the channel. Some of them are in Eclipse sets. One of them has been released as a spy-numbered film, which is A Woman Ascends the Stairs, which is a great film. But he has so many great movies on the service, and watching his films is an incredibly rewarding experience, and I believe none of them have ever been featured in any bundle on the Criterion channel to this point. So it's easy to overlook these movies. Even easier to overlook are the kind of what I call one-offs, the titles from directors that only have one film in the collection on the service. Those movies were more elevated when they first arrived on Filmstruck or on Hulu as new titles, but a lot of them have quickly been forgotten. And there are some true masterpieces available on the service that are from directors who only have one, maybe two or three titles. And I think through the process of watching the streaming-only films, I've seen about a quarter of them up to this point but plan to continue watching all of them. I've gotten to some really great movies that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. Something like Cure or Mm. La Ceremony from two pretty well-known directors in Chabrol and Kurosawa, the other Kurosawa. And something like Seance on a Wet Afternoon, which is a wonderful British noir-y thriller movie that I highly recommend, but would go totally forgotten if not for the fact that it's on this service and that I was planning to watch through all of these movies. So 
This is definitely a worthy pursuit, and I highly recommend it for anybody who is interested in exploring some of the less traveled areas of Criterion's catalog. Yeah, yeah. You know, you talk about trying to be viewing complete on the channel. What is your methodology for it? I know you like to work your way chronologically through filmmakers' careers. Maybe talk a little bit about your process for that and not only how you maybe tackle your filmmaker journeys, but how you reach some of those one-offs as well, because those one-offs are the ones that I'm always afraid of missing. Yeah. How do you systematize your approach to the films that are only available on the channel? Yeah, well, through the process of watching all of the spine numbered titles, I think from about 2009 to 2014, I think was when I finished. I watched about 500 Criterion films mm. in order to catch up with all of the disc releases. And through that process, there was a lot of trial and error. I was thinking I'd go by spine number. That's a terrible way to do it, <laughs> even though technically I'm doing that now as I try to keep up with the new releases. It's completely out of order and random, whatever they got the rights to or had good restorations for. And I also think it's a little strict in terms of my mood or what I feel like watching at that moment. You know, if you stick too strongly to a particular method, you might end up not watching a movie that you aren't interested in and three months go by because you've been putting off this one movie. That doesn't seem like a fun way to do something which is supposed to be an enjoyable pursuit. My personal process as it evolved became really tackling directors and their films in chronological order. I find that to be incredibly illuminating as indicated by the fact that I started a podcast with that concept behind it. But it's just nice to be able to see somebody evolve, commenting on their own work, responding to the reception or their experience making previous films and growing as an artist, I find to be very rewarding. That said, I think that there's value in quite a few approaches. And I also will say that I typically work on multiple directors at the same time. So, mm. for example, right now I'm watching Kenoshida's films in chronological order. I'm watching Hanukkah's films in chronological order and a couple of others that I can't even think of right now. So it's not like I'm only focused on one thing. And then I'm also kind of trying to scoop up the early films, the silence that are on the service, mm. because there's not a ton of them. It's mostly Lloyd and Chaplin shorts and kind of the films that haven't been released yet on disc that are available on the silent end. There's a couple of other, there's some Victor Sostrom and some Russian films, but for the most part, it's kind of like looking at those little niches that are nice to be able to kind of clean up. For me, it's a different form of satisfaction. I enjoy the checking the box on the list. And I try to separate that from my experience of watching the movie because I don't want to watch something just to say that I've watched it, but it's still quite nice. The other method that I recommend is by country, mm. especially for the streaming only titles, because there are so many Japanese films. Yeah. And there's very few of pretty much any other country. 
that are yeah. available. So it's very easy to just look at England or Korea or Spain and say, I'm going to watch all of the films from this country because there's typically only about 10 to 15 of them. And so it's a little bit more manageable and you get a good sense of what they have available from that country. And that's a good way to kind of stumble onto the titles that are individual titles that you might not be aware of otherwise. Mm, yeah. I hadn't thought about doing it by country. That seems like a very handy way to capture some of those films that are kind of the potpourri right. of films. I started working my way through their digital collection back during the Hulu days, and it was so overwhelming to me, and I just did not have a good handle, and the Hulu interface was so rotten. Yeah. It was so difficult to navigate that I hit on what I, in her show notes, I have called an alphabetical pub crawl, just trying to get from one title to the other because it was the only way I could get it to lay out in Hulu in any sort of a way that made sense to me. I could at least get Hulu to lay the films out alphabetically and I could see where I was in order right. <laughs> and I could go, okay, I haven't seen this one. I can click on this and I can watch this. What I've ended up doing as I do that is I'll hit a director that I really connect with through those alphabetical mm. listings and then i'll go back and dig through all of the films of that director yeah that's great uh, I like that. and yeah. yeah and then kind of go back through my little ocd alphabet soup of a listing and then kind of find a director again that i really want to connect with and then work my way through another director for a bit it's a little haphazard it's not quite as systematized Maybe now that I've let go of the notion that I can ever have the limited engagements under any semblance of control, maybe now this is the way to walk into the new year. Yeah, I mean, on the All Films link on the website, it's basically a sortable list similar to the sortable list that they have on the Criterion.com website for their discs. Mm which is all of the titles that are available on the channel at that moment. So it includes the titles that are on disc and it also the titles that are limited engagements. But you can sort that by country, director, and the other thing that you can sort by, which we haven't mentioned, is genre, which is also, I think, a worthy area to explore. If you know that you love thrillers or mm. you know that you want to see comedies, you know, you can find a lot of those titles that have fallen through the cracks in that way. You can also find your way to directors that might not necessarily specialize in those genres, but have one or two films that are like that, which can be very illuminating. I just watched a Kenoshita, which was practically a noir, and that was very mm -hmm. fascinating to see him in that form. I think the difficult thing about both country and genre is that because there are so many Japanese films and so many dramas, you don't want to end up in a situation where you've watched through all the countries and all the genres that are not this giant <laughs> chunk of the list. And then, you know, you have all of a sudden you've watched everything else, but you have a hundred Japanese dramas to watch. That could get pretty weepy pretty quickly, you know, especially if it's Narase and Kenoshita that you've got to work your way through. So I do recommend if you decide to pick one of these methods, 
don't feel like you have to stick to it. You should bounce around as much as you can to keep this fresh. And just remember that you're taking this journey not to be finished at the end of it, but for the actual experience of working your way through these films and experiencing some of the best cinema that is available. And the fact that, you know, especially these movies that are streaming exclusive, there would be no other way for us to see these movies legally without this channel because there's simply not an audience to put them out. That's a real shame because a lot of these movies are quite extraordinary. I mean, I think of something like Sound in the Mountain, the Narose film, or Yearning. Both of those movies are masterpieces on the scale of many of the best films that are in the collection on disc. This is a true treasure, and I'm glad that, you know, you wanted me to talk about this this time because it's very easy to praise the channel for all of the wonderful bundles that they're putting together and the remarkable curation and their relationship with other labels and studios that allows them to get these titles made available for streaming. But this is the heart of this collection. It shouldn't be overlooked in the rush to watch every last movie before it goes off the service. I don't think anybody should put these off saying, oh, they'll always be there because that's a recipe for forgetting about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for just talking about some different strategies. And as someone who has completed a few different viewing projects, I appreciate your wisdom on making it fun and remembering that we do this not to check off boxes, but we do this because we love the films and that it's not about the end of the journey, but it's about the journey itself. Thanks for talking with me about this today. Thank you. Before we close things out, why don't you talk a little bit about where you are with The Complete and your journey with Krzysztof Kozlowski? Well, we just wrapped up Decalogue. We had a great conversation with a Polish scholar and film critic about Kieślowski in general and Decalogue in particular. So our next episode will be on The Double Life of Veronique, and then we will close out with The Three Colors. We have a special guest for all three colors, so we're excited about that. And then we'll probably do a wrap-up episode and then on to the next director. So this has been a wonderful year of Kieślowski for us. We spend a lot of time thinking about what director we're going to do because Mm. obviously we spend a lot of time watching their movies and reading about them and talking about them. So we want to be sure it's something that's going to be fun. But even with that knowledge, this has been more fulfilling than I could have possibly expected. So I'm really excited to get to these last four kind of towering masterpieces. It's exciting. That's great. Where can people find you online? I'm Matthew E.G. on Letterboxd, and the show can be found at The Complete Pod on Twitter and thecompletepod.blueberry.net for the episodes. And I'm easiest to find on Letterboxd. Great. Well, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as David Blakesley and I discuss police stories, films about crime and justice that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out the Magic Lantern Podcast, hosted by Erica Long and Cole Rulane exploring the films we love and the things we love about them. The Magic Lantern is a film podcast hosted by Eric Long and Cole Rulane devoted to sharing their enduring cinematic memories. 
Join them for an ongoing, informal discussion of the classic and contemporary films they love and the things they love about them. If you've been looking for a podcast to explore old and new favorites with fellow film lovers, you've come to the right place. New episodes every other Monday. Find out more at magiclanternpodcast.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with David Blakesley, and we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent, streaming-only digital library. Because the channel releases so much incredible content each month, as we've just discussed, it's easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we try to pay attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. It's the start of the new year, and I thought it might be nice to kick things off with police stories. Stories of crime and justice to bring in 2020 and to bring in this new decade. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterbox list of Criterion streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. So, David, how did you approach these titles, and what did you choose for your first film? Well, yeah, so when you and I were talking, I don't know, a month or two ago, and you looked at sort of some of the upcoming programmatic themes that you have for future episodes, I had a desire to be on this podcast where we like what you're doing here and thought I'd have something to contribute. But when you mentioned police and crime stories, yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting little corner of cinema. Crime is just kind of an interesting aspect of the human condition. Most people, I would imagine, are, for the most part, law-abiding citizens. We understand what are the rules, and there's consequences and penalties when you break those rules. And yet, we have to acknowledge that criminality and people who do the wrong thing is a big part of the life that we live and the repercussions Mm. of that. And cinema is one of those ways of exploring the phenomenon of crime, if you will. Why do people do what they do? How does it affect those who are victimized or just innocent bystanders? And how do we sort out what it's like to be involved in criminality without actually having to go through it ourselves? And so to me, that's just a really interesting aspect of what the movies can do. They can bring us into an experience that I'll wish for the most part (laughs) for our listeners, (laughs) you don't have to personally go through in reality. And yet you want to understand it. You want to try to figure out why things go that way. And so I went through Michael's list, very nicely curated there, and I found a couple titles that intrigued me by the premises, the little synopses that I read when I looked them up, and was very happy to see that they rewarded my viewing, (laughs) and I'm very happy to talk about them and endorse them here. So the first one I got into is a film called Obsession by Edward Dimitrik. This is a British kind of noir thriller from 1949, kind of that post-war epoch. And there's some interesting cultural things going on here in terms of Britain's rebuilding economy and even some of the criticisms of their dependency on the American system at that time. Of course, the British Empire was the source of great pride and national satisfaction. But, you know, the British Empire kind of took a few steps backwards in that post-war era. They recognized that even though they played a critical role in World War II, they were kind of second or even third fiddle in some ways to what the Soviet Union and the United States did in terms of pushing back the Nazi regime. So you got a little bit of a flavor there, but really what I appreciate about this film was just the cleverness and the intrigue of the story that it put forth. 
It's a story about a man who's married to a beautiful woman, and she's also a flirtatious woman, kind of a vivacious, vibrant woman. The actress who played her name is Sally Gray. She was quite striking, likened to sort of a British Ginger Rogers. And the lead actor is Robert Newton, who I guess is most famous for his portrayal of Long John Silver in Disney's adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, a 1950 Mm. film. He's kind of the prototypical movie pirate. In fact, apparently people who (laughs) are specialists in that subgenre sort of see him as the definitive personification of the pirate mystique. The voice, the swagger, the kind of wary, intense gaze, all of those types of things. Parrot on his shoulder, all of that stuff. So Robert Newton was that guy. Here we get to see Robert Newton kind of out of costume. He might be also familiar to Criterion viewers as the Bill Sykes character in Oliver Twist, a great David Lean film. He was in Androcles and the Lion, had some smaller parts in Henry V, Odd Man Out, Major Barbara. He was in Gaslight. So, you know, even if the name doesn't really jump out at you, you may be quite familiar with his persona. But here, Robert Newton plays more of a mainstream type of character. He's not dressed up. He's a doctor. He's a wealthy London physician who's just had it with his wife's profligate ways, and he decides that the next man that he finds her messing around with is going to be the victim of what he aspires to be the perfect murder. (laughs) And so Hmm. the title Obsession kind of gets us into that mindset. He's going to get his revenge, not just on the poor, unfortunate schmuck who he happened to catch philandering with his wife, but on all the men who've tarnished his reputation and his self-esteem along the way. And so basically what you're getting into is a crime that's been premeditated, very thoughtfully planned with every detail covered and thought out in advance so that he will leave no evidence behind. He will be able to toy with his victim. There's kind of a very elaborate psychological cat and mouse game because what ends up happening is when he catches his wife and this man, not really in the act, but just coming home from a date when he shows up unexpectedly, He abducts the man, takes him to a hidden chamber. There's a room that he has access to. It's in kind of a slummy part of London that is very infrequently inhabited. And he has a capacity to lock this man up. And over the course of time, he's going to not only torment this individual more psychologically than physically, but he's going to also wreak his revenge on his wife and in the process destroy all evidence that anything inappropriate has happened here. So... (laughs) It's a very interesting, little twisted, warped thriller type of a film. And I found it very entertaining and just a very interesting glimpse into the British character and persona at a kind of a transitionary moment in that national history. Have you had a chance to see it by any chance? Uh, No, I haven't. This sounds fantastic. As I was preparing the last of our outline last night, I was looking at this and I was like, oh, this sounds really great. I'm very eager to check this out now. So yeah, Yeah. this looks great and very fun. It becomes a little bit of a policier about halfway through. It's about an hour and 40 minutes or so, but you don't really get any cops involved until about 50 odd minutes into the story. And the inspector, the police detective who comes in is Naunton Wayne. Again, another name that probably doesn't strike familiarity with a lot of listeners. But if you remember the Caldecott and Charters duo from The Lady Vanishes, that kind of prime British Hitchcock film, he was Caldecott of that Mm, duo. mm -hmm. And he comes in and it's a bit part, but it's very well done. He's the shrewd Scotland Yard inspector who just knows how to barge in at the most inopportune 
opportune moment for a criminal who's looking to <laughs> get away with it. And he just asks questions and just kind of keeps picking and digging and, you know, kind of chipping away at the foundations of this so-called perfect murder. It's all very nicely staged, very entertaining and engaging certainly don't want to give away much more than I already have, but I hopefully will intrigue viewers to give it a spin. It's not really part of any bigger bundle. I guess it actually could be part of the Dog's Life bundle, because there is a nice little twist involving a canine companion here. I'll just kind of throw that out there as a little bit of a teaser. So if you like watching dogs in films, there's a nice little aspect of that <laughs> that comes to play in the unfolding of this story here. That's well, very fun. You know, these are the types of films... I subscribed to Hulu Plus back in the day, really because of these types of films that, you know, Criterion might never get around to releasing something like this on physical media. And I mean, right. this sounds like a fantastic film. This sounds like such a unique opportunity to get a chance to see something that I might never get a chance to see otherwise. This sounds delightful. Yeah, I don't really ever see this coming out on a disc, unless they decide to do some kind of package deal. It's just a little bit too obscure. The film isn't really restored. I mean, you're going to see a lot of spots and clicks and little, you know, rough around the edges there. But it plays nicely, and if you're just in the mood for a little cracking British murder mystery, here's one for you. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. I think this is a great recommendation. That sounds very good. My first title is Bulldog Drummond's Secret Police, directed by James P. Hogan from 1939. We have a lot of Bulldog Drummond films in the collection, so I felt like it was about time to at least get one of these into our queue. I don't want to devote too many episodes to just Bulldog Drummond films. <laughs> Maybe just do one and get them all out of the way. <laughs> yes, yes. This is the 16th film to be released in the Bulldog Drummond series since 1922. It's based on a series of novels that were originally written by Sapper McNeil. They're, in some ways, a mix between the serial adventures that you'd get from earlier days, pointing the way towards things like the James Bond novels. Hugh Bulldog Drummond is a wealthy gentleman and World War I veteran who's bored by a lifestyle of leisure, and he goes looking for adventure everywhere. He goes meddling in murderous plots and foreign espionage. He works with the police frequently. Nearly every film in the series features his longtime fiance Phyllis, who he is always on the cusp of marrying, but his adventures inevitably end up postponing the nuptials. He's good friends with the head of Scotland Yard, who used to be his commanding officer, and he likes to lend his assistance, and yet at the same time, he likes to think that he's above the law. In many ways, as I was watching it this time, he reminds me of the rogue cop in 80s action movies, except he's not a cop. He just always gets called into the inspector's office and saying, Bulldog, you can't do this, and yet he goes and does it anyway. Drummond in this film is played by John Howard, and the film opens with him making preparations once again to marry Phyllis, and Phyllis's aunt is constantly talking about the fact that the wedding isn't going to happen, there's going to be some explosion or some murder or something that's going to stop them from getting married, and he has a bunch of his old war buddies that are trying to help him get the manor house ready for the wedding. There's a lot of bumbling, goofy slapstick that gets mixed in with the dry British wit. There's an absent-minded professor who goes looking for Drummond and gets there to tell him about a hidden treasure in the Drummond home as a shifty new servant comes on staff, and we all know where that leads. 
There are secret ciphers and hidden tunnels. There are murders and death traps. There's a delightful dream sequence in the film where we see flashbacks to some of the franchise's greatest hits. So you get a sample of all of the sword fights and bullwhips, plane crashes, explosions. There are battles with lions, narrow escapes. And I like the way that it pokes fun at most of the conventions of the series so that it doesn't take itself too seriously. They manage to give Phyllis a more active role in the adventure, which also manages to give the film a slightly more modern feel. And throughout all of the goofiness and the slapstick that happens in the film, there are some darker twists and the police come in to guard the house as this murderer comes in to steal the treasure out from under Bulldog and the professor. And it's the police that are kind of treated as the cannon fodder. The murders that happen here are treated with a gravity that I didn't expect from a film that plays everything pretty lightly, even the central murder. I started watching the Bulldog Drummond films back when they were on Hulu Plus and watched them all in order and kind of binged them all a little bit just after I watched all of the Zatoichi films. And while there isn't as much continuity as there is in Zatoichi, the Bulldog Drummond films that star John Howard, there is a sense of a little more of a narrative that's being told. And I do like that this one does seem to at least fit into some sort of a continuing adventure. They're not all great. This one, I think, is one that plays it really fun, though. It feels a little like a bit of an Agatha Christie mystery mixed in with some of the great serial adventures that you might get from the early 30s. It has a feel of some of those 30s, maybe stage-bound films mixed in with some really elaborate set pieces. Again, death traps and spiked floors and some big fight sequences that really make it fun. Aunt Blanche has a really delightful line that I do want to quote here as murders are happening around her. Wedding festivities indeed, she says. This place is a house of horrors. <laughs> it's a charming film. I think if you're going to sample any of them, Bulldog Drummond's Secret Police is a really fun one to get into. When you get into some of the earlier ones, there's an edge of the xenophobia and the fascism that was sweeping across Europe at the time. There's some interesting historical things that you can watch there, but because they're played as adventure stories, there's something that's very uncomfortable. And I think that especially with where we are as a culture and a society, I think something that hits maybe a little too close to home, especially when that xenophobia and that fascism is lauded as commendable. Hmm. So I appreciate the fact that in the midst of World War II here, this at least is more of escapist entertainment and is not trying to stoke up anti-immigrant sentiment like hmm. the original Bulldog Drummond novels and films were. Maybe they were just recognizing how close to the flame they had gotten and said, hey, we got to reel it back here a little bit, huh? I think so. I think yeah. so. I think that the character itself, in much the same way that from what I know of the James Bond novels, there is a bit more brutality to some of the characters. I think that as film becomes more refined and as standards get in place, the rough edges get kind of smoothed over in these films as well. Hmm. As this film goes on, in order to trap the murderer, Bulldog Drummond forms his own little secret police force with his army buddies and with the head of Scotland Yard to ferret out the killer. 
this is charming. You're not going to find a lot of real great depth and subtext and nuance here, but it's only an hour long. You're looking at 54 minutes, and when you watch a couple of these in a row, they can be a fun thing to just throw on when you want to unwind. Yeah, sounds like a nice Saturday matinee. I might just pop it in right after we're done recording here. Exactly, exactly. This is the type of film that, for an afternoon viewing, goes down easy. You don't have to think about it too much afterwards, and can be a lot of fun. Very good. So, David, tell me about film number two. I saw this a while ago, and so I'm really eager to hear your thoughts. Sure, sure. Well, let's go with Henri-Georges Clouseau's L'Assassin Habité au Vinton, which is the last uh, I'll do a French pronunciation there. But this is <laughs> The Murderer Lives at Number 21, to translate it into English. But it is titled in the French on the Criterion Channel. This is a 1942 film made in France. So if you do your history and do your math, you recognize that this was made under the Nazi occupation by a young screenwriter at the time, Henri-Georges Clouseau, who went on to great fame and bigger and better things, though not without some obstacles and difficulties along the way. This was his first solo feature as a director. He had written numerous screenplays and I guess had co-directed on a few short films in the early 1930s, but this is the first time that he helmed a film all by himself and, uh, of course, went on to create films like Wages of Fear, Les Diaboliques, La Verte, and was also pretty well known for Le Corbeau, like Le Cabor, this is made by Continental Films, which is the officially sanctioned movie production company that operated under the Vichy regime in 1940 through 44, when Paris was finally liberated and France itself was kind of released from the Nazi grip. Continental was run by German ownership, affiliated with the Third Reich, so any film that was made by Continental basically had a seal of approval from the Nazi government, from the Third Reich, and that created some problems with Clouseau later on in his career, as well as the film Le Cobro itself, which was a very unflattering portrayal, to say the least, of French society and the mores and manners and underlying I don't know, ghastliness of what was happening in the culture at that time. Clouseau is one of the famous misanthropes of cinema. His portraits of human nature and characters are, by and large, very unflattering, and some might even say a little bit exaggerated. But on the other hand, he kind of tells it like it is, and I have a lot of respect for him for the portrayals that he put forth and captured on film. I mean, there's both kind of a macabre entertainment value to these nasty, backbiting, spiteful driven characters and you know there's just kind of a stark portrayal of how people often (laughs) behave and he has a unique gift for just capturing that and for his willingness to sort of put it on without a whole lot of blunting of the harder edges there. Working for Continental gave Clouseau some important opportunities to refine his craft. He had to make a living. I mean, I do have a lot of sympathy for people living in France who, for whatever reason, either had not chosen or had not had the means to go into exile. Of course, a lot of the great French talents from the 1930s saw the storm coming and flew the coop and headed over, whether it was to Hollywood or other parts of the world where they could kind of ride it out and get by. Clouseau was stuck, and he had to figure out a way to survive. And so with films like Le Corbeau, he got himself into trouble and you know, had to work himself out from under that cloud further on down the line. 
This story, The Murderer Lives at Number 21, is kind of a mystery surrounding a serial killer. And we really see some very intriguing point of view, first person shots of the killings as they occur at various stages in the early portions of the film. But this killer goes by the name of Monsieur Durand, and he leaves a little nicely printed business card on the bodies of each of his victims. And that's what kind of gets the story cranked up to begin with. As the bodies pile up, the police start getting involved, and that enlists the officer played by Pierre Fresnay, a pretty great French actor of his era. He was in Grand Illusion. He was also very prominent in the Marseille trilogy and also was featured later in Le Corbeau. He's the guy who goes undercover. He plays a Protestant minister who kind of situates himself into this address at number 21 where the murderer is reputed to live based on some tips that the police have received. And once he gets in there, you meet this great cast of oddball eccentrics, all of them with a little bit of a nasty disposition themselves, all of whom seem like they're quite capable and then some of being the killer in question here. And so you've got a nice little cast of offbeat characters. You've got the magician, kind of this Egyptologist. You've got the old maid spinster. You've got just thwarted lovers and all kinds of people with a little bit of an axe to grind who might have it in them to do in poor misfits of society. And the question is, who's the killer? Who's going to stop this madness? And how are we going to figure things out. As the story goes along, the different suspects do their time being incarcerated, thinking, well, okay, we've nailed it. We've got the killer under wraps. They're locked up. And yet, oh, here's another body. (laughs) Here's another business card with Monsieur Duran's name on it. And it just kind of keeps the Mm. suspense going. It's a very brisk 82 minute or so running time. Very lively. The characterizations are quite entertaining. I have to give a big shout out to Susie Delaire. She's the female lead here, and she's quite something. Bristling with energy, her voice, her diction, her audacity at playing this character, this young woman. She's a singer who's just desperate to make it. She wants to be a star. She dreams of being in the spotlight, and she'll do literally anything to get that attention. She really drives the film. I don't think she was top build, but she's maybe the most remarkable performer on screen. And really, it's quite delightful. Mm. I just really, again, enjoyed the whole spectacle of this film, the way it unfolds, the way it resolves itself. Very entertaining and a very good indication of the kind of sinister underbelly that Clouseau was very interested in exploring throughout the remainder of his career. Yeah. I saw this a few years ago, and, you know, I love Clouseau. I think Clouseau is one of those filmmakers who is just always such a delight to watch. Yeah, I wholly echo your recommendation for this. And I really do love that kind of French occupation subtext of a film being made under really awful circumstances. Films like Children of Paradise, I've already mentioned Le Corbeau, others that were made during these really fraught years, and even some of the changes that Clouseau introduced into the film, where he was willing to not only critique his own society, but also the Germans and the people that he was working under their auspices and perhaps in some sense was grateful for the opportunity to work, and yet he portrayed some of the venal cruelty of that time. There are characters within the context of the story who seem very content to let Monsieur Durand do his thing and clean up the streets of these undesirable characters, and, you know, the world's a better place with some of these creeps knocked off under the most scandalous of circumstances. 
obviously there was a lot of killing going on and there was a lot of prejudice and a lot of deciding who deserves to live and who doesn't on many different sides but kind of the dark humor that it takes to keep your head up and keep your wits about you during very oppressive times is on display here i can only imagine what kind of pressure these people were living and operating under and you just get a taste of that by watching films made in these circumstances so it's really wonderful maybe that's not the best word to use but it's valuable that we have these artifacts of works of art made in this particular time and place yeah yeah that's great that's great my second title is a film called the castle of sand directed by yoshitaro nomura from 1974 Nomura is the son of a journeyman director from Shochiko Studios. Yoshitaro Nomura got his start as Kurosawa's assistant director on The Idiot and eventually made a name for himself as one of Japan's leading directors of noir and crime films. This film, The Castle of Sand, opens with this really haunting image of a boy building sandcastles and this vast desert expanse under the credits. And then we cut immediately to two inspectors getting off a train and these functional titles of a detective's notebook that come up, letting us know that we've entered into a police procedural. But there are all these lovely touches that keep subverting the genre. Our lead detective, he keeps mentioning that he is eager to write the poem that he came up with on the train ride over. There seems to be this futility to their investigation and a resignation to the fact that so many of the turns, the paths and the avenues of investigation seem to turn up nothing. It isn't until about 15, 20 minutes into the film that we learn that they are investigating the murder of an unidentified old man. And the only clue they have is his accent and one word that was spoken. With that to go on, they begin to travel across the country to these far-flung regions. The story is told through multiple levels of flashback and fragment, and it just contributes to the sense of mystery. There are these constant title cards that narrate the investigation as dryly as possible, almost like an episode of Dragnet or Law and Order. However, the performances, the people that they meet in the course of their investigation give these really surprisingly soulful performances so that we get a sense of an emotional grounding and the sense of loss is more honest and there's more depth there than I'm used to from these types of procedurals. The investigation has them researching dialects and village histories and obscure regions in Japan. They are traveling across the country. They're delving deep into the victim's past. As they travel further and further from the big city, they're delving deeper and deeper into the victim's past and into Japan's past itself. Like so many of the 70s Japanese films that I know that you're exploring in your podcast, David, the colors are just so rich and textured and vibrant, and the cinematography is so rich and warm. The film is filled with so many moments of profound sadness and tragedy. The final third essentially is a prolonged inspector's report. It's the let me tell you how it all happened moment, but it's a third of the film. Nomura intercuts this exposition with extended flashbacks, with a lengthy symphony sequence, with all of these moments that 
help us understand the motivations for the crime, that help us understand who these characters are in a way that makes what could be dry exposition something more meaningful, more emotional, more resonant. I was really surprised and really moved by the end in a way that I didn't expect from Hmm. something that, again, for 50 minutes when you're just narrating the step-by-step of what happened, we actually get at the emotional core of what's going on here. But I think it's because Nomura, in this case, is using the procedural form not as an end in and of itself, but as a way to explore cultural stigmas and to explore Japanese society and to explore the ways that oppression works and the ways that those cultural forces can really shape a person. It's a really beautiful film. This was a revisit for me when I watched it again, and it has made me really eager as I was doing some more reading about Nomura and his history as a filmmaker. It makes me really eager to revisit more of his films that are buried in the back catalog. Films like The Demon, Zero Focus, Stakeout, and The Shadow Within. There are quite a few films of his on the channel that just really haven't been highlighted yet, and I think there's a lot here to dig into. So I'm very eager to learn more about him and more about his work. He does seem like a significant director. I do want to plug a episode that I did in season two of my podcast on The Shadow Within, one of the titles you mentioned just now. And when I was preparing for that episode, which also starred William Remmers, a great contributor to our show over the last few years, I think I remember watching Zero Focus and Stakeout, both of which were pretty, again, I think Stakeout in particular is quite fitting for this theme of kind of yeah. a crime thriller. Uh, I'm not sure I recall The Demon. Maybe I've watched it, maybe not. But you're right. He does seem like a director of some substance who, for whatever reason, has just not been fully celebrated or brought to prominence. I do recall reading that Castle of Sand was kind of considered his masterpiece, one that was in my queue for future as a 74 film. Is that correct? Yeah, 74. Yeah. So it's a couple seasons away. (laughs) (laughs) Presuming that I continue this pace and all of that, it might be a while, but I really appreciate the plug and it does really renew my intrigue to learn more about this great director. Yeah, that's great. Well, that is four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. Obsession by Edward Dimitrik, Bulldog Drummond Secret Police, directed by James P. Hogan, La Sasson Habite au Vingte Un, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau, and The Castle of Sand, directed by Yoshitaro Nomura. David, I really want to thank you again for joining me. This has been such a pleasure to talk with you about the Criterion Channel and about these films and to talk about police stories. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me and for creating this space for us to have a conversation and share it with our listeners. Where can people find you online? Oh, just look me up on CriterionCast.com. That's probably the simplest way. I'll also say, if you do want to interact with me, I am on the usual Facebook Criterion-themed groups. I do have one called Criterion Reflections, the group is where I post links to my episodes and do a little bit of interactive stuff, post links to old blogs and podcast episodes, and just kind of chat with the group as far as things I generate myself or my movie talk. But that's where you find me. CriterionCast.com is my main base of operations, and find me on social media as well. Perfect. Thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
it'll probably be a while. I'm sure you've got other guests before you line me up for another episode of this, but I really enjoyed doing it, and I will continue digging through the rich archive of the Criterion channel, and we'll be back here one of these days, I'm sure. Definitely, definitely. Thanks, David. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd really like to thank all of my current Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Your support means so much. Next month on the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast, my guest and I will sit down to discuss The Lovers. But first, David Blakesley and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode, in which we'll discuss more police stories that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.